Hello, welcome to my Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. To me, life is Camino. It has, it's never really ended. It never really began. It's always simply been. That voice you just heard is Stephen Drew, and we'll get to Stephen and his Camino book in a moment. But first, thanks for your understanding and patience with me taking a week off last week. I headed a thousand kilometres up north to Queensland to visit my mother and three of my brothers. It was the first time I'd seen them in more than two years, and it was just magic. (laughs) Family is such a blessing. I see myself in their eyes, their laughter, and I see my children's faces in their faces and in my mother's eyes. And I stood on the shore of the Pacific Ocean with my youngest son watching him reel in a fish, and I just thought, you know what? This is pure joy. Joy of family and joy of love and joy of life. There are so many pilgrims contacting me right now, so many pilgrims either arriving on the Camino or planning to head over. And I just feel like the shroud of the pandemic is slowly but surely being peeled back and we can start to plan to walk or stride out on the Camino again. If this is the first time you've joined the podcast, this is a weekly discussion about El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James, an ancient pilgrimage in Spain. If the person you're talking to has never heard of the Camino, I guess it's best to sum it up this way. It's an 800-kilometre walk through the north of Spain, and millions of pilgrims have walked the Camino over the course of the last thousand years or more for adventure, discovery, and or enlightenment. I've only walked two Caminos on both occasions, I was part of a Camino family of sorts. On my second Camino in 2017, I paused by the bridge in Molina Seca after that treacherous walk down the hill into the old town. A friend was leaving us that day, a member of our Camino family, Ruth, from Ireland, and I was really sad about it. I would miss her laughter and her energy, but I understood that she had to go home, she had to go back to work. But as I entered the town across the bridge, the clicking of my poles echoing in the ancient stonework, I... I saw my Camino family at the restaurant garden by the bridge. They were laughing and high-fiving, and I realised then that Ruth was staying. She'd called work to say the Camino was providing an opportunity that she simply couldn't pass up. She was granted leave to complete her Camino and was overjoyed, as we were. The Camino family is an unusual phenomenon. Unlikely souls combine in an unlikely setting with a range of purpose and intention, but a common spirit, and that spirit is pilgrimage. And pilgrimage can mean different things to different people, but I really love the way it was described by this week's guest, Stephen Drew. Stephen calls the Camino a transcendent journey of the body, heart, mind, and spirit. He calls his book a chronicle of change under the influence of grace, a story told in the language of the soul. Stephen says in his book, Into the Thin, it's a dialogue suffused with resilience, a dialogue between humanity and its spirit. Sounds like the Camino to me. Stephen's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Well, thank you. And Blaine Camino, Dan. It's just wonderful to be with you. And, And hello, everyone. The core of the book deals with what you call your emotional crucifixion. It's a very, very heavy way of putting it. The death of a close friend and mentor, as well as your father-in-law, the health crisis of a stepdaughter, and the suicide of your 28-year-old son, and lastly, the decline and end of your marriage. But I want to start where you start. 
A first warp that sets off across the living room carpet between the hopeful faces and outstretched arms of mum and dad eventually leads through to the high meadows of the French Pyrenees and beyond. Such a great beginning to the book. Tell us about the Camino and you and how you came to be on the Camino. Well, you know, I I opened the book with that question, where does anything really begin, you know, and, and, uh, and this is, this is something that, that sort of expanded into the idea for me anyway, that, that the pilgrimage uh, is, is more than a, 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 just a metaphor for life. It is, it's life itself. So um, my own coming to the Camino for me um, began many, many years ago. Uh, I was uh, uh, living in in Philadelphia back in the 1980s. I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and I had begun to write. Uh, I I think it was probably kind of a, a romantic notion back then. Uh, you know, young man living in the big city. You know, I was coming off my first marriage, so you can only imagine how I was living. And and I thought, geez, this is this is great. I'll I'll become a writer. Well, as it turned out, uh, it was more than a, a romantic notion. It was it was uh, something I could actually do. I I had what uh, they refer to these days as a writing voice, that unique way of putting words to to the page. Uh, but it was very undeveloped. Uh, it was very raw, and so to sort of hone that that writing skill, I uh, I started reading uh, voraciously, and mostly I, I was reading uh, classic fiction. You know, studying the masters, if you will. Uh, but there was one exception to this this reading that I was doing in, in terms of the fiction, and it was a nonfiction book written by James Michener. It was called Iberia. Uh, and it was one of those uh, deep dive, uh, dense travelogues that that he was known for. Uh, and and so I, in this in this chapter or the the last chapter of the book is uh, is called Santiago de Compostela, and of you know we 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 know what that's all about. And in this chapter, he he talked about the Camino. He described the Camino and referred to it as the finest journey in all of Spain. And, and it just captured my imagination, you know, the, the religious and the spiritual implications of this thing, I can assure you at the time were completely lost on me. It was basically living a hedonistic lifestyle. But the adventure of walking across a country, that really, really grabbed me. And, um, but like, like all good books we read, it, it sort of faded into memory. I, I could never... Uh, you know, put the Camino into into my life experience. It just never seemed to be in the cards. That always seemed to be something that other people do. And uh, and even my my writing practice, I, I walked away from that. Uh, you know, I chose the 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 safer, more secure route of career and you know raising family and a and a pretty conventional way of going about life. So I even set that writing gift to the side and moved on. Um, and Decades passed until the year 2010, which is the year that, that you described and, and those, those events that, that unfolded in the course of that one year. Uh, you know, I use the language emotional crucifixion, and there's times when I think, yeah, maybe that's a little, maybe that's a little strong, you know. 
but actually, I, I think it works. If, yeah. if we look at a period of time of, of unimaginable suffering and, and, and pain, uh, then that works. And, and to play that to play that forward, to use that analogy and play it forward, we know that what follows crucifixion is, is resurrection. So um, that kind of worked for me in, in, yeah. in that way. After uh, the, uh, the, uh, the marital separation, I, I moved to a, a rural community in northwest Connecticut. Uh, I, live in a, I still live there, a town called Morris, population 2200. It's just uh, a place that's, that's come to be home for me. Um, and uh, after about a year or so of, of living there, uh, my my uh, my sweetheart Diane emailed me one Saturday afternoon and said, "Hey, there's a there's a movie playing locally. It's called The Way. Here's the trailer. Take a look." So uh, uh, she said, "You know, it, this one might be kind of rough on you. So why don't you take a good look at this trailer and, and we'll talk about it." And I I could see what she was talking about. Went to see the movie, and, and of course, you know, in the first 10 minutes of this movie, there's the adult son who, you know, goes to walk, you know, ostensibly the French route, hikes off in, up on the Napoleon route, freak accident happens, and he's killed, and father has to go to Spain to retrieve the body, the adventure begins, and, and away we go. So in the first 10 minutes in that movie, I'm just, I'm weeping. You know, as I'm completely enmeshed in, in the grief over the death of my son, and I'm completely invested in, in this remarkable performance uh, by Martin Sheen as the grieving father. But as I'm watching this movie, Dan, the memory of the Camino starts coming back to me, right? And I'm like, I know this thing. This is the thing from the Michener book, you know, and it was literally decades that had to come up out of decades of, of, of memory. And, uh, and still, I never, I never would have, have put myself on the Camino. It's not like I, you know, uh, ran home after seeing the movie to book travel for, for, uh, for, for Europe. I, uh, and there was a lot before me going on in my life at the time. Uh, a lot of responsibilities and obligations and, uh, you know, taking off on the Camino would not have been on my list of things to do. It literally never would have occurred to me. But, of course, looking back on this, I, I see the book as a seed planted, and I see the movie as a seed um, germinated, if you will. Um, the following year, and this is, this is when things get a little weird, I will admit, <laughs> uh, in August, the following year, 2012, I... I went out for a walk. I, I was given to walking. I, I've always been a, a walker, and, and, and living in the area that I do, it's, it's, it's just beautiful spaces for that. But it was one of the, the hot, hazy, humid days that we get in New England during the summer, and I was out walking along, just walking on a roadside in Morris, Connecticut, just stepping along, step, step, step. A foot leaves the ground. And the entire experience of walking the Camino, all of the attendant implications of walking the Camino, all of the outcomes of walking the Camino enters my life as a complete reality. Foot returns to ground. 
And um, I remember at the time that my, my body jerked somehow, some kind of a noise came out of me. The first thing I thought of was, okay, I've, I've lost my mind. I, I, I thought maybe this is what some kind of a psychotic break must feel like. Interestingly, I kept walking, not knowing at that time, of course, that the mantra for pilgrimage is no matter what, just keep, keep walking. But I did keep walking. And then this, um, this second wave of experience, I, I, I guess I could call it, came through. And it's, it's not like hearing voices or anything like that. It was, it was more of an assurance, um, um, an impression that came through. And, it, but if it had words, it, it would have been, it would have calmed me. It would have said, hey, it's, it's going to be okay. You know, there's a lot before you in this life right now. This is understood. Uh, when the rhythms of life allow, you will go because there's something there for you, and this is your new reality. Wow. And uh, in April of 2016, I found myself on an airplane bound for Paris. So uh, that's the, the compressed version of, of <laughs> how that one came about. The book is so great. I loved it. Um, the line in the introduction that grabbed me said, um, before all the different ways we found of moving ourselves from one place to another – there was always walking, ancient and perfect. So when difficulties come as they must in this life, it is often the elegant movement of the walk we resort to in search of our answer, a way to consider, to reflect, to centre our troubled selves, maybe on a country road, down a path, along a winter beach or through a labyrinth. The walk has a way with the mind and the heart. So you've told us how the Camino came into your life. Tell us about the realisation of stepping onto the Camino in St. Jean-Pied-de-Port. It must have been a realization then and there, I'm about to do this. It's not just a dream. Exactly, yeah. Um, the, the day I left Saint-Jean, uh, um, when I had checked in at the pilgrim office the day before, uh, the young lady I spoke to, sort of gave me an ominous, ominous weather prediction. She said that the weather was predicted to be unsettled, not a term that I wanted to hear walking up into the corners. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had pretty well uh, kind of surrendered to the road, you know, and, and so I, I left at first light. Uh, uh, I've got a great shot leaving uh, uh, that I took leaving, uh, heading toward the western gate of, of of sunshine, just me and another lonely pilgrim, uh, hundred yards ahead of me, and um, and the the lower part of that route is is um, it's delightful for a couple of kilometers, and then it starts it starts getting kind of gnarly quickly, and and uh, but when I first got on that road, I was you know I was caught up in in the in the surroundings and and how my body felt. Uh, you know, I, I, I can hear the, the cowbells echoing, mm. you know, I'm watching the sheep and the yeah. horses and the cows grazing. And, mm. and I hear the cuckoos in, in April yeah. in, in, in Spain and Europe, of course, we have cuckoos. We don't have those in the States. So it's just delightful to listen to them. It's their mating call. I've come to find out. But then as I, as I turned on a switchback and, and the, the, the gray just launched in front of me, that's when the wind-driven torrential rain started. And so uh, 
I, I hear that the valley views between there and Orison are spectacular, but I never saw one oh, because right. it was completely shrouded in, in torrential downpour. I mean, it was it was relentless, Dan. And in the book, I, I used the, the language of it. it felt like it was walking waist, waist deep in a swimming pool. It was yeah. literally much just wind resistance and the, and the pelting of the rain. And, and I remember thinking, my God, you know, like, what have I done? There's still <laughs> 790-something <laughs> kilometers of this. That's right. Yeah. So it had it, in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of respects, uh, it really had all of the major components of, of a full Camino in that, in that first day. It had that desperation and the, and the you know, the, my God, what have I done? And, the, and you know, the ego and the, and the spirit doing battle and the, and the, physic, the physicality, the carnality of the walk. Uh, after Orison, I, I, I got rested there and fed and dried off. And then I, uh, I guess at about the 15 kilometer mark, not long before crossing the border, I met a fellow from Western Canada. And of course, you know how it is when you meet up with somebody that you give each other strength. It's that yeah. we thing. And uh, so the rest of the, the walk was was merely uh, uh, 50 mile an hour winds that we could deal with. But the, 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 the route provided, you know, some some snow and sleet just to round out the, the complete weather experience uh, for the day. But I have this 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 theory about the uh, the unfolding of, of the Camino. And 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 I, I look at it as a three phase thing. And I don't think this is necessarily a universal. It's fairly widely held, but not necessarily universal. But it, it's very consistent with how it played out for me uh, that the centering experience, if you will, of those first days, um, and I would say really even up up to uh, walking into Burgos, mm-hmm. is, a, is, is a very carnal experience. That's where it seems to center. And then you know, to either side of that carnality, you have you have the psychological and the and the spiritual, uh, and then crossing the meseta, that two hundred and thirty kilometers of magnificent nothingness in the in the middle of the route. That's the realm where the centering experience is is the mind. It's the pilgrim mind. It's it's recollection. It's reflection. It's remembrance. It's that emotional and and psychological detoxification how many of us have the experience of walking through the meseta everything is fine nothing is wrong and all of a sudden we're bursting into chest heaving sobs i don't know what else to call that but some kind of purgation if you will Mm. and then of course you know we move on through Astorga and start the slow, steady climb toward, toward Galicia, and we're into ascension, you know, and the, the correlation to that, of course, is, is uh, uh, you know, the in, centering then in the, in the spiritual realm. Uh, so that's sort of how it unfolded for me. But of course, on any given day, you can weave in and out of all of those things. It's, it's very fluid. It's, it's very squishy, you know, it's <laughs> not you know, firm stages, if you will, in that respect. But that's always how it struck me. And it's, it's, it's certainly is how I experienced it. Do you remember what you expected to find on the Camino? Did you have an expectation at all? You know, I had done a lot of, uh, a lot of reading before I left 
uh, Dan, such such that you know I, I I read a lot of blog posts and and watched a lot of YouTube content um, regarding this very thing, you know, and it seemed to be a balance <clears throat> between walking into beginning the walk of, of, of pilgrimage with a measure of intention. And I think after the, the calling that I had, I, I, could, I could be rest assured that, that something was, was before me. Um, you know, I think taking uh, the losses of that, that very difficult year on, on pilgrimage and, and trying to find, you know, tease that stuff apart, uh, and trying to understand perhaps more deeply what what the deeper implications of that were, mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, that certainly came into play. But of course, the Camino has its own agenda, you know. And I I, I was just giving a talk recently, and and I and I it, as I was preparing for it, it, it dawned on me that you know we, we pilgrims assign the intelligence of entity to the Camino. We actually refer to it as something that is there to show us, to carry us, to heal us, to bring us to a certain place, you know? And I think we're using it largely metaphorically as spirit or, or, or what have you. But when I got to, um, when I got to Cruz de Ferro, uh, that's sort of where this rubber met the road, if you will. And I, I walked in there with my intentions and my burdens and the things I wanted to let go of. I, I brought my stones from home. They were, they were uh, each stone was dedicated. And I set those down after much, surprisingly, uh, uh, a lot of difficulty. It took me two tries to let go of my stones at the cross. And when I finally did, I did have a sense of release from those things. And, but then the Camino had this other thing. There was another matter that opened up, something from way, way, way back from my, even before my earliest memories that was always with me as I had, uh, as I had walked through life that I thought, you know, hooked me up to a lie detector. It says true. I had thought that I had dealt with but the Camino knew better and it was there to show me that there was, that there was more to do. And as it turned out, it, it was of course, you know, quite correct. So I walked away from Cruz de Ferro with, with mixed feelings, mm. but I did walk in with a certain amount of intention, but I knew that I had to be open to what it would choose to show me. And I had that sense too, in that realm of the mind crossing the Meseta there was a very strong sense of that, that there was more going on here than I, than mm. I could have initially imagined. Yeah. Are you a religious person, Stephen? I was, uh, I am what they refer to as a cradle Catholic. I was, I was uh, baptized as, as an infant. And um, I moved away from the religion uh, as a teenager. Uh, I like to say for good reason. Um, and when I was when I moved into my twenties, as is common for that that age, the twenties, I, I I set out to discover my own spiritual identity, or 
or a spirituality that that resonated with me. And I, my my tendency went toward the East, uh, Buddhism, the Tao, uh, Advaita Vedanta, the the non-dual teachings of the East. Um, but you know, Dan, the hooks run deep with Catholics. The hooks, the hooks run mighty deep. And uh, you know, I I always like to mention that, you know, in my I, I pray and I meditate every morning, and uh, the words that I read as I prepare for that meditation every morning are the words of Thomas Merton, Mister Cradle Catholic. Here reads the words of a Christian mystic, a Catholic monk because it's through his words the teacher appears, if, if that makes any sense. So um, I am, uh, uh, I, I think I would probably identify myself uh, more as, as spiritually centered than religiously centered. It's um, sort of cliche to say that, but mm. that's kind of how I seem to, yeah. to be these days. I want to get to this emotional crucifixion in just a moment. Before we do, though, I just want to read a little passage from the book um, because this really will explain a lot of background and, and we might just talk about it before we get to the emotional crucifixion. You wrote, recovery from addiction and what created it produces an interesting effect that not many people experience. For most, life unfolds on a continuum through reasonably predictable passages and transitions from decade to decade. We come to self-govern and view the world through the development of certain ideas and paradigms, an operating system that allows us to negotiate life with at least some measure of competence. But what if the operating system goes awry? What if a key answer to life, and for you it was alcohol, turns out to be unsustainable? And what if this unsustainable answer turns out to be all rolled up into identity and how the world appears to be? If the unsustainable is to be turned aside for survival, and it is, then inherent in that process, a lot must change. And you say it does. As the new answer forms and the old is left behind, the personality motivated by survival molds and adapts to a very different view of every experience. A radically different interior landscape develops and a new self emerges. You wrote, something fractured becomes whole. Old friends not seen in a while begin to say things like, something about you is really different, can't quite put my finger on it, but... And you say, in my case, as with most, this happened over quite a bit of time. My Rome wasn't built in a day but was built exceedingly well. I didn't get my old life back after the drinking. I got a new one. So here's the thing. I've actually lived two very different lives in one, and it was only the new life that could have ever accepted and embraced the Camino. So by my way of thinking, you are the very essence of a pilgrim, Stephen. The very essence. Your your journey didn't begin the day your step lifted on your summer walk in in Morris or on the first day in St. Jean-Pierre-de-Port, your pilgrimage has begun many, many years ago when you knew there was something that you needed to find, didn't you? You are correct. And 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 this is this is something that you know I, I come around to uh, as the book closes, but that I've even discovered more recently uh, in, in, in my own life experience and reflecting on all of this, that um, 
life for me is a very circular thing. It's not about the linear, the, the points on a, on a straight line. It's very circular. Enter that circle at any point. And, uh, and I came to realize, and this is, this is a good example to give you, Dan, what, what you were referring to about that, you know, like the, the beginnings of things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When I first, and I guess I would clarify by saying those, those points I referred to before were matters of awareness, you know, uh, being let in on what's up, what's really going on, you know, that we don't always have, have access to. But when I came home from uh, from the Camino, a series of events unfolded that that were rather interesting to me. I I did a I posted a travel blog when I was in in Spain, and uh, uh, it was a very simple affair. Really, it was you know first person narrative words, first person photographs. Um, you know, my my name, my face never appeared on the thing. It was just intended for a small group of people. But as I walked and as I posted, people started sharing the blog address. And, you know, next thing I know, it's got a following. And the interesting thing was, is when I got back, I started running into people who had followed this, this blog post. And, um, and they were asking me questions like, so have you started working on the book yet? Hmm. To which I would reply, what book? I, I have no idea. No, I don't know. You know, what would that look like? And, and I started to feel this agitation and it wasn't their questions. It was my answers. So I, I, I considered this as, as maybe just maybe somebody's trying to give me a message here. And I, and I took it into walking contemplation. But here's, here's the thing. This is where we come back around. As I'm walking in the late spring into early summer of 2016, uh, the story starts coming toward me and I can actually identify sentences and passages and, and, and story sequencing notions. And, and, and I realized that I was, I was being compelled, if you will, to, to write something. So I did. And I got a couple of thousand words, maybe or so, um, and I, and I, it was, I don't know how many, but it was enough to sit and, and consider, you know, to, to be with those words. And, uh, and when I did, there were, there were two things I recognized. One was that there was something to be passed on. There was actually something to say. But the other thing was I recognized that writing voice that I had walked away from decades before in the same time frame that I first became aware of this thing called the community Santiago vis-a-vis -vis the Michener book. So it's all this constant rolling over, you know, it's not, it's not about linear time. It's, it's almost as if, you know, it was all just right here and right now. And I can pick out any point in that right mm. here and right now mm. and, and, and where I am, you know? So uh, it, I, your point is well taken. And I, I totally, uh, you know, agree with it. I, um, I've been, I've walked one Camino. Uh, I walked the French route in 2016 and I've been awaiting discernment for the second one. And I, I wonder about the Primitivo maybe this fall or next spring. I'm not really sure, but I'm not really hung up on 
on whether I do another Camino or how many Caminos I do, because to me, life is Camino. It has, it's never really ended. It never really began. It's always simply been. And so. That's great. I really love that. You say in the book, Stephen, there has been a voice gathering from some essential and mystical place. It wants to speak of things like crucifixions and resurrections of redemption of Mm -hmm. journeys within and without about the breaking and healing of the human heart and about the improbable becoming real. It wants to speak of romance and adventure and conquering fear of finding the freedom of heaven right here between the lines of life. Have your challenges in your life given you more courage to face those fears that you wrote about in that passage? Yeah, you know, Dan, it's, it's always interesting to me whenever I've had the experience, and this goes back to that sort of recovering life that I that I, I was I was brought to. It's it's always interesting that you know you can come into this profoundly spiritual way of living life as the result of almost meeting meeting your own demise. You know, mm-hmm. um, but the, the the I think the the thing that you're you're um, you're talking about it's it's a uh, it's an intrinsic kind of, 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 of way of, of processing what is before me. Um, I would submit that, for example, before going into that, um, that very difficult year with all the loss that was inherent in that year, uh, had I not been sort of preconditioned with those recovering paradigms that you referred to before, it would have been a very, very different outcome. Mm-hmm. At least that's how it strikes me. Yeah, so you, you, you talked about this emotional crucifixion, this extraordinary journey that you needed to walk through. Uh, it, it, it was the death of a close friend and mentor, as well as your father-in-law, the health crisis of a stepdaughter, the suicide of your 28-year-old son, and the decline of the end of your marriage. I don't want to go through each of them and sort of rake over the coals, but I would ask you, if you wouldn't mind, sharing us perhaps the story of your son. My my son, uh, his his, uh, his name is Keith. Um, uh, He was uh, 28 years old when he ended his life in an act of suicide. Uh, this was at the end of a very long road of, of addiction and um, uh, uh, mental disorder as well. Um, <clears throat> from virtually all of his adult life, he was, he was dealing with this. And, um, and I think he had had essentially gotten to a point where he lost hope. Uh, he hadn't, this was not his first attempt at suicide. He had attempted several times before. So, you know, our, our family knew that, that this was likely not, you know, going to, to end well. Mm. Um, it was sort of a convergence of events in that period of time. You referred to my, my stepdaughter's, um, uh, life-changing illness. And, 
my son's suicide actually occurred while she was hospitalized with that with that illness. Uh, so there was an overlap there, if you will, mm. that necessitated us actually having to tell her in the hospital that her stepbrother had had ended his his life. Um, but the the aftermath of that, of course, you know, it's still an ongoing thing, and and it's sort of the the the, the, the great mountain of, of, of grief, you know, to, to lose a child, uh, especially in such a, a horrific way. I will spare you and everyone the details. Mm. Uh, I do refer to it in the book. You do, yeah. It was a, uh, it was a rather gruesome end. And, and um, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that it, it changes um, a person forever. Um, no matter what the the, uh, the the spiritual outlook of, of of my life is, is that is something that is always going to be um, a, a profound a profound event. Now, the way he was living, uh, and this may sound you know a little harsh, but the way he was living was so horrific that his end matched the horror of his life. And and to a certain extent, at least, um, his his death came as 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 somewhat of a relief that mm-hmm. he no longer had to suffer the life that he was living. Yeah, and and that does sort of um, I don't want to say help with the grief, but it it certainly softens the edges of it to 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 try to not make this you know about me. And and focus on the fact that he's he's no longer in that that degree of, of pain and, yeah. and, and discomfort. Yeah. The uh, the one thing that that he taught me better than anyone, and I had had my own dance with addiction, as you alluded to, um, but but he had always he was the first one that taught me that that what it was about, what his addiction was about, was about pain. Um, you know, you, if you look at anything that, that we add to our bodies uh, in an addictive way, it's, it's all about relieving pain. So the question isn't really so much, you know, what's the drug or what's the lifestyle? It's what's the pain, you know? And, and that's something that, that, that he taught me and, and taught me well, unfortunately. The book is called Into the Thin. And you say Mm. in the book, thin places is a 5th century Celtic term used to describe locations in the world where the layers between matter and spirit are only paper thin. Were there moments on the Camino, Stephen, thin places where you felt your son's presence? Um, Yes. Um, Yes, there were, um, actually, uh, several, certainly at Cristofero. And also... Uh, beyond uh, Santiago, uh, at um, and I'm sure there were there were moments on the Meseta where I I considered him, and I I think probably a lot of that purgation was was uh, was uh, rooted in, in in memory of him or in, in my memories of him. But beyond uh, Santiago, I I went out to uh, Finisterre for nine days. And um, it was there, I think, that I probably felt uh, more of that, more of his presence than, than anything else. Um, 
I went there for nine days to uh, engage in, in sitting meditation, but but also more walking. I, I walked the moors. I walked the beaches. I walked the coastal roads. I found a, a place out there uh, heading out toward Muchia, heading north along the coast from Finisterre. It's called Castromignan. And uh, coastal moors that, that, that border and, and cliffs leading down into the ocean. It's just breathtaking. And there was a lot of revelation and realization that, that came to me as I walked out there. So, uh, mm. yeah, I, I, I'd say he was, he was with me in many ways in that respect, yeah. Yeah, you write in the book, I still see his smiling blue eyes looking toward me so long ago from the rear of our canoe. I will wander forever. I think he was beautiful. Such a great line. I, I teared up when I was reading it. I'm tearing up now. I think that's just tough being a dad sometimes. You, you walked a lot in the rain. I find walking in the rain, it's easy to get very deep within yourself. And you were mm. really dealing with a lot of history as well as current emotion. Uh, tell us about Pop. It's a beautiful piece in the book where you write about your relationship with Pop. Tell us about Pop. He was, uh, so Pop was my father-in-law. He was the most beautiful human being. And and just if if you ever had a a specification for the perfect father-in-law, it was him. He he was kind. He was loving. He didn't interfere in anything. He was just a a beautiful man. a simple sort of fellow. Uh, he was a, a French Canadian, came from the woods of Maine, uh, moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut to get work in the factories and provide for his, his new family. Uh, just a, a, a wonderful guy. And uh, he was very much, in, in, in many, many respects, he was a father figure to me, more so than my own dad. Uh, my own dad and I had our, our difficulties, but but Pop and I never did. Um, I, I used to love to be with him. Uh, that last year, he was uh, he was diagnosed um, early in that year uh, with uh, a terminal heart. Uh, it just he had had a bunch of bypasses, and it, it was just it was time. And he was uh, hospitalized for fifty six days, and uh, and so I couldn't get enough of him because I, I had enough understanding to know. That, um, that this was going to be our last time together. So I visited him in the hospital quite frequently. Now, this was a guy who, you know, it just he didn't seem like he belonged in a hospital at the end of his life, you know. But that's what was in the cards for him. But he faced it with such grace. It was breathtaking. Uh, he had the grand tour of this hospital. He was on, on all of the cardiac units. He was in the intensive care unit because his condition was up and down like a yo-yo, uh, various you know levels of consciousness. Uh, but when he was awake and alert, everybody who came into that room, whether they were there to you know put a needle into him or there to empty the trash, they got a smile and a thank you. It was just he beamed grace. He was remarkable. And I went to see him one day, and he was in uh, something called the telemetry unit. It was sort of a mid-grade. It wasn't a regular hospital room, but it wasn't the ICU. It was, it was something in between. And I remember 
that I walked in, I, I cracked the door open and I looked at him and, you know, I know what dead looks like. And he looked dead. And I thought, oh, my God, how, how could this happen? And nobody realized it. His eyes were, were open and staring off into a, a corner of the room. Uh, he was gray. Uh, I turned around to look at the monitors because I knew that, you know, I, I would see his name and his room number and the tracing. They had a wall full of these things. And I look over there and there's this heartbeat just ticking right along. It just, the collar didn't match the cuffs there. And I thought, my God, what's going on? And just as I'm experiencing this, I hear from the inside of the room, he says, hey, mister. That's what he used to call me, mister. You know, the, the, the main accent with mister. And I turn around and he's smiling at me and he's got great color and his eyes are sparkling. And, and I actually wondered if I, I hadn't been dreaming that, but I know I wasn't. And I honestly think he was he was sort of exploring at that point. It was about a week and a week and a half maybe before he died. And uh, I, I just always had the impression that he was out kind of fishing around seeing what what the new neighborhood might look like. But he had a he had a beautiful life and he, had, he actually had a beautiful death. My my wife at the time uh, was uh, was uh, uh, the, uh, an ICU nurse who eventually went into um, hospice work and she was you know ex extremely close to her dad and uh saw him through to the end it was it was a beautiful and uplifting thing and he literally died in his home they got him out of the hospital thank god he died in his own home and literally surrounded by family so it was a beautiful experience yeah i want to just Go through a couple of tropes in the book. Um, leaving Pamplona, you find yourself in a field with flowers to one side mm -hmm. and ruins on another. You say, it's as close to heaven as you can imagine. Yet, as you walk away, you look back and see it entirely differently. What do you think you learned about yourself in that moment? Well, you know, I, I don't know it was so much about myself, Dan. It's just about the nature of, of the world. You know, mm. uh, and I used the plural there intentionally. So just to back up a little, I was with two walking companions, a, a fellow, a, a German fellow who I would end up walking all the way to Burgos with. And this Canadian guy that I had met on the Napoleon route. And we were in that large open plain mm. west of Pamplona. You leave Suzur Menor and, and head out onto the plains. No, well, and yeah. in, the, in the spring... Uh, there's this just this endless emerald green new growth wheat and grasses. But the year that I was there, anyway, they were punctuated with these huge acreages of brilliant yellow blooms. Mm. And, uh, and we walked along in, in this particular area we walked on, and it's sort of like over the shoulder. It almost sneaks up on you. And we turned our heads to look, and the three of us just slowed to a stop. I mean, it, we were speechless. And it was, uh, it was a place called Gwendolyn. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or if any of the, the, uh, the folks listening are. Uh, but it's an old church ruin and an old ruined palace. The mm. roof is caved in. It's, it's at least a 1,000 years old. Yeah. And that's in the far distance. And then everything between 
that ruin and the Camino was this brilliant yellow blooms. We were told at the time that there were mustard blooms, but I think more accurately they were canola blooms. But the way that the light was shining in that moment, in that moment, was that it was it, it appeared that the, the plants themselves were radiating the light. Wow. It put like this glow in the air. Wow. And 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 Dan, it was otherworldly. And I remember thinking to myself, very consciously thinking, I wonder if this is what heaven looks like. <laughs> and um, and so I also at that moment began thinking of the term you know, the, uh, the Celtic term, thin places, mm. and, and this idea where the layers between spirit and matter are just so thin that you could, you could almost just reach across into that, into that next place. And it, it's, it's where conditions have to be just so for, for something like that to, to happen. It's a very transient thing. And, and, and here we were in this perfect place. And uh, and tangentially, when it came time to publish the book, um, I had taken a photo of this, of course, and the photo never does does something like that justice. You can't capture that glow that was in the air. But I, I implored my publisher to use it as part of the cover art, and and they did. That, that's that's hmm. that's the cover of, of my book. Is that is that scene. But when walking away, it, I'm so glad you asked about that because nobody ever, nobody ever has asked me about that idea of, of walking away and then looking back and realizing that it's a transient world we live in. It's very temporal. Things change literally from moment to moment. Yeah. So in, in this one place, I'm having this, this mystical experience with my fellow pilgrims and and all of us are having some measure of that. We never really articulated it to each other because it was so intensely personal to each of us. And yet, as we walk away, we move maybe, oh, geez, I don't know, 10 meters and turn around to look one more time. And now the light has changed and the angle has changed. And, and now it's just a beautiful field of blooms mm. and an old ruin. And we move we yeah. move forward on the Camino and off to Zarakegi on the, on the way up to Alta de Perdon. Yeah. So it's, that's kind of more how it, it yeah. struck me. It wasn't so much a, you know, an interior personal sure. uh, awakening. Yeah. It was, it was just the nature of things. Yeah. Later you arrive in Hontanas on the Maseta. You've walked 31 kilometers that day, yet you feel fantastic. You say you take it as a symptom, a blessing, some kind of unburdening and something you need to be exceedingly grateful for. But to whom or what are you grateful? Well, I'm grateful to, to the all of it, right? Okay. So, yeah. you know, practicing, um, it's kind of hard to talk about non-duality, if you will, because non-duality is a dualistic notion, right? Mm. But, but the, the, the term Advaita simply means not to, um, that you begin to perceive things as, as one singular energy, that everything I, I observe, everything I look at is a projection of the one shared mind we all are. Um, not to go down this, this rabbit hole to any great degree, but that's that's the 
that's the the source and the object and the and the manifestation of this this gratitude and it's not about the list of things that i'm happy about uh, because when you ask people gee what are you grateful for you're going to get back a list of things that they're happy about to me it's also acknowledging the perfection of all of those things that 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 harmed us that hurt us that broke our hearts to look back on a year like I had, not to beat that to death, but to look back on a year like that with such profound loss and still feel a sense of gratitude, knowing that it was all perfectly and precisely as it should be. Mm. And all that's grown from that, all the blessings that have come from that, that started appearing almost immediately. And it's not hard to feel that sense of gratitude. It doesn't necessarily mean it's something that I'm necessarily happy about, but grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. There's another passage from the book, and I really like this a lot too. I'll read it here. Facing the Parador San Marcos on the plaza is a bronze statue. It's of a medieval pilgrim seated on a stone step, his sandals off and placed beside his feet. He wears a cloak and tattered stockings of his times. His head is tilted back and his eyes are closed, hands in his lap with the right hand holding the left wrist. He bears a countenance of deepest prayer and utter exhaustion. I want to sit and have a word with him to find out where he is from, to hear him tell me how his village sent him off and if they prayed with him as mine did. I want to know of all his hardships, how the kindness of strangers has carried him to this place and where he might sleep tonight. I want to hear how much he misses his family and what he longs for most right now. Is he in pain and what of his purpose? Is it forgiveness? Is it redemption? Is it to know the presence of God? I wonder, is he travelling to Santiago or on his way home as he maintains his station, placed here in an irony of the highest order before the silk sheets and room service of luxurious Parador? He is at once inspiring and heartbreaking, yet another quiet statement of the great innocence, dressed in rags, going to any lengths as it seeks to save its holy self. In him, I see us all. I love the way you wrote the book. You're not just reflecting, but you're analysing too. And it's a very brutally honest book in many respects. And it's a very courageous book in many respects. I need to ask you a very simple question. Did you find what you were looking for and hoping for on the Camino? The simple answer is yes, I did. And I continue to. But I want to tell you something, Dan. I, if I was a betting man, I would have, I would have known that you were going to ask me about our friend on the on, on the Plaza de San Marcos because I watched that video of yours, oh, yeah. the somewhere along the way, and 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 I and I remember the way you sat next to him, and it brought tears to my eyes because, you know, and you can't make this up, Dan, but on my way out of town, of course, that the Camino walks right, yeah. right past him. Yeah. And on my way out of town, I had a two-day rest in Leon. I loved Leon. And I was, uh, I was heading out, and, and I sat, and I did the exact same thing you did. I sat next to him. Mm-hmm. I put my hand on his leg. and was like, you know, buen Camino, my friend. Yeah. And he really touched me. Yeah, that, yeah, that statue yeah. Really 
But the short answer is yes. I, I did find what I was looking for, and I, and I, and I also continue to find that it's it's an evolution i don't know that you know we know that the we know the camino doesn't end in santiago or finisterre or muchia that those are the turnaround places right and i and i really think that in 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 my case anyway uh it's it's almost an indefinite thing you know back to that whole uh you know life as pilgrimage you know one equals equals the other yeah. But yes, most definitely, I came away with um, uh, a sense of 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 oneness and forgiveness, and mm. and I don't mean forgiveness in terms of transgressions or you know um, uh, any perceived uh, grievances. It's it's forgiveness that that anything even needed to be forgiven. That mm. complete that that deeper forgiveness. Um, can I read something to you? Yeah, of course you can. This, um, <clears throat> the reason I, you know, every time I give a, a Camino talk, I, I always try to, to read this piece because uh, to me it's, it's the perfect Camino uh, scenario where, where it's just another day. It's just another day. There was yeah. nothing special going on. It wasn't some landmark location like Cruz de Ferro or the cathedral or anything like that. This was someplace in uh, La Rioja approaching Castilla y Leon. And, um, and, and I'm just going to read this and, and, and let it stand for itself. Before resuming its proximity to the highway, the Camino zigzags a bit and contained in my view for a time I see between one and two kilometers of the path's blonde dirt ahead as it courses through the deep green slopes. All along its track are pilgrims, perhaps 30 or so in small clusters or alone, spread out and moving westward. For just a bare moment, for just the briefest fraction of a footstep on a Morris road of a moment, I see it all differently. No longer do I see pilgrims I see pilgrimage, a movement towards something, a movement away, a movement of grace. I realize in this moment I am not apart from them, were they from me. I am in no way living in opposition to them. I am them. And in the larger context of life beyond the Camino, all the competing needs and desires, all the conflicting interests, all the wounds inflicted and received, all the differences of body and thought and language, and most certainly of religion, are revealed as only mistaken notions of things. Elegies of separation become expressions of compassionate oneness along this thin, magical road to Santiago. Realization loves to dance here, to be glimpsed, even if only in the briefest of flashes. And that's what I mean by that oneness. When I can look at others and literally see that they and I are the same thing. Now, you, I, you may remember I mentioned before that I read Merton every morning. Yeah. I read from his book, uh, Thoughts in Solitude. And I, again, I, I read him because it is through his word, the teacher appears. And it didn't dawn on me until after I had written the book that experience is very reminiscent of an experience that he had and followers of Merton will know what I'm talking about. It's a mystical experience that he had 
in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> the corner of Fourth and Walnut, where he looked around and he saw all the people around him as, as shining, shining like light. And it was just a beautiful experience he had. And I'd like to think that we were kind of in the same swim lane there, mm. that whole perception of, of oneness. And that really was a lot of the theme. If you play that forward, if you truly can look at life that way, what is there to forgive? You know, yeah. what is there really given? What is there to, to, to mourn? You know, grief is love. Grief is how we love those who are no longer with us. That's mm. the new word we use for love when they're no longer with us. But, but to mourn, to, to go through life with this heavy sorrow. If I really truly look at life that way and having that experience, you know, I can say that I do. I don't have that level of awareness that I had in that moment. Yeah. That was, that was brief, but it sure makes it sure makes a lot more sense going forward. Wow, what a wonderful place to finish. I think it was Ernest Hemingway who said, in order to write about life, first you must live it. And you most certainly have lived it. And you most certainly have written about it. And you've written about it beautifully. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Stephen. Congratulations on the book. And, and congratulations for your bravery. Congratulations for your honesty. There are parts of the book where I think, man, this must have been difficult to write. But you did, and we are all the richer for it. Thank you very much oh, for taking the time to talk to us. Buen Camino. My pleasure, Dan. And My guest this week was Stephen Drew. His book is out now. It's uh, via all the usual outlets. It's called Into the Thin, and you can also get it via his website, authorstephendrew.com, and it's Stephen with a P-H, author Stephen Drew, D-R-E-W, I think it was Ernest Hemingway who wrote, in order to write about life, you must first live it. Well, Stephen's book is a wonderful journey of discovery, and we have all learned something from the path he walks. Thanks for your company this week and every week. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way.